Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Yeah, of democracy, very good. <laughs> G'day and thanks for dialing up Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kinney from ANU's Australian Studies Institute and indeed the School of Politics and International Relations. And this podcast is made possible by policyforum.net at the Crawford School of Public Policy. So very much a collaboration. On Democracy Sausage, we sometimes look back and sometimes forward, but the program this week actively does both. Just don't tell the 100-year-old Chinese Communist Party, which regards history itself as a battleground, a tool of the present in which truth is merely one option. Indeed, it's an offence to challenge the party's version of history with pesky facts like the number of people massacred at Tiananmen Square in 1989 or enslaved in Xinjiang province right now. President Xi's truth is the only truth. Alternative accounts are described as historical nihilism. Xi says that history has chosen the Chinese Communist Party, just as the people have chosen the Chinese Communist Party. Fifty years ago this week, Australia's then opposition leader, Gough Whitlam, travelled to China's capital, then called Peking, to establish contact and begin the formal recognition of China. The CCP was 50 years old exactly. It was an audacious act from the opposition, yet it would be followed immediately by a secret mission from the Nixon White House to do the same thing. Fifty years later, and the CCP is of course 100 years old this very week. Australia led the process of bringing China into the world with active engagement, and now seems to be leading the process of renunciation of Beijing's policies. To discuss the multiple issues involved here, I'm joined by Dr. David Goodman, who is Emeritus Professor of Chinese Politics at the University of Sydney, and whose research interests include contemporary social and political change in China and the history of the aforementioned Chinese Communist Party. And it's welcome back also to Yun Zhang, who is Managing Editor of the China Story blog at ANU and produces the weekly newsletter China Nakan. 
She's a former policy advisor in the departments of Prime Minister and Cabinet, Treasury and Defence. Welcome to you both. Hello. David, the first meeting of the Chinese Communist Party was a conclave of sorts in Shanghai in 1921, hence 100 years ago. Can you just sort of set the tone of that of that meeting tell us a little bit about the the history of that of that event well i mean before we go any further we should really recognize that the um, nomination of the 1st of july or even in fact july 1921 as the foundation of the communist party is part of the creation of history uh, perfectly justified but nonetheless a creation the party had begun its life in 90 or party in china had begun its life in a number of small groups in 1919 and 1920. And it was uh, the Comintern, the uh, Communist International, uh, operating out of Petersburg, had sent its agents to China to organise the Communist Party at that time. So um, what happened in 1920 and then in 1921 is that various of these different groups who were around the country, some of whom were organised by the Comintern and some of whom were not, uh, came together. Uh, And in fact, they probably met um, as such round about the 23rd of July rather than the 1st. But later on, it was decided that for reasons more or less of geomancy, that's to say the uh, magic of numbers, that the 1st of July would be chosen as uh, the date of the foundation of the party. And everybody agreed it. I mean, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like the party kind of casually did it. There was a lot of discussion in 1938 and again in 1941, uh, and they agreed that this would be the date that it would be celebrated. So in Chinese, the word for 1st of July is not actually, well, it's sometimes called party day, but it's more likely to be commemoration day. So not necessarily the day on which it happened, but the day on which we commemorate. Well, as I mentioned, the Chinese Communist Party can be criticised for its uh, you know, rather elastic uh, application of, of truth and, and dogma and so forth. But I think we can afford them some licence for uh, for messing around with the dates. I mean, 100, over 100 years, a matter of three weeks. And I think your criticism is far too harsh. This history is not what happened. <laughs> history is what we say now happened in the past. Yes. And whilst it's true that communist parties as a rule um, say thing, you know, you can say of communist parties as a rule that it's uh, uh, the future is always certain, it's only the past which is changing. Nonetheless, everybody does this. Everybody. Every society in the world yes. creates its society. Just look at the British, right? The British create a history that goes back to Boudicca. In fact, you know, they created themselves in the 19th century. It's a, it's a load of hogwash. Communist parties, though, do it more. And of course, uh, President Xi has been to the fore recently with his comments on uh, uh, a historical nihilism. But it's not unusual. Well, look, this is called democracy sausage after all. And I, and I, one, uh, you're allowed to express views and it's fantastic that you do. And two, that's really the point that uh, it's not so much about what your version of history is. It's about whether you're allowed to have an alternative version. That is a fairly critical difference. I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. Uh, as an author who's written about things that uh, the party on occasions doesn't seem to agree with, uh, I, I've been in situations where I've had to defend my views, both outside China and, incidentally, inside China. So I totally agree with you. 
So this meeting anyway, this conclave that uh, occurred, whether it was later in July or, or whatever, and as you say, it's often difficult to pin down the, the creation of lots of things that go on to become, whether it be businesses or or, or political parties or, or other creative ideas, uh, it, it can be difficult anyway to pin down the precise moment at which something could be said to have actually come into being. But nonetheless, it, it's important that, as you say, there was a representative of the common turn there uh, and that this happens really in the shadow of the Russian Revolution as well. So that really tells us a lot about what was going on uh, internationally and what influence that had and I suppose um, in the, the way that the sort of Marxist-Leninist ideology informed the creation of the CCP. Completely correct. Some of the Marxists were independent of Comintern and some were not. But uh, you you would say that the early days of the party were very much structured by um, Moscow, Petersburg and the Soviet Revolution. No question about it. And a lot of people back then also studied overseas. Quite a few studied in France as well. So even in early days, there are a lot of foreign influences in the establishment of the uh, CCP, which is quite interesting now because right now the CCP likes to talk about how it it does not like foreign foreign influence, but really the CCP was established with a lot of foreign influence. Yes, indeed. It uh, does seem to be somewhat more insular now than, than perhaps was the case in the past. Is there a generally good understanding, do you think, in the West about the origins of the Chinese Communist Party, the influences that happened? I mean, we we know of, uh, obviously, the major figures like Mao Zedong. He doesn't become the leader until 1935. So that's, you know... Or even later, yeah. Is it, is it later? Sometime between 1935 and 1942, yeah. And why is, I mean, it's interesting, we're having a discussion a minute ago about you know the timing of a of a of a meeting, uh, you know, over a matter of weeks, and then something as critical as who is the leader, you say is is in fact a little less determinant uh, over a period of years. Well, historians argue over this, okay. and the reason is, the reason is that um, uh, he the nominal position of leader uh, wasn't his until much later. Right, I see. So he had more emphasis. I mean, take Deng Xiaoping for example in later time. Deng Xiaoping was never uh, uh, the number one leader by name, but he Mm -hmm. was regarded as the paramount leader. And so, you know, influence is everything. It's not a liberal democracy, remember. (laughs) Yes, we keep reminding ourselves of that. But I'm I'm really quite fascinated by that. So is that because the positions that, and, you know, we'll come to Xi Jinping, obviously, in more detail, but is that because the positions that he now holds as leader of the party what is he, Secretary General of the Chinese Communist Party? Who? Xi Jinping. Yeah, and President of the PRC. Yeah. Now, obviously, President of the PRC couldn't exist at that time because the PRC hasn't come into being yet. Correct. But is that one of the reasons? There was a General Secretary of the party yeah. before forty nine, and there was also a Chair of the party. And, uh, in fact, the Chair – I mean – there were many different strands, which we might call factions, right. in the Communist Party before, really, before about 1945. And uh, it included people who were like Mao. They were uh, rev- uh, peasant revolutionaries who'd gone to the countryside in 1927. There, are, there were people who'd stayed in China after the defeat of 1927 when the nationalists turned on the uh, communists. And there were 
there were also people who liked Mao and people who didn't like Mao. And there were people who liked each other and didn't like each other. There were people who'd been educated in Moscow, as Jun was saying, and who came back and uh, 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 said, uh, with the backing of Moscow, they said things like, well, we're going to tell you how to run the revolution. And of course, that didn't go on well either. There were even people who'd stayed in China and not gone to Moscow who hadn't been involved with Mao and had decided to do their own thing on the Long March. And they got, they had their own group. And in fact, they were all around, even in Yan'an, which is where the party ended up uh, uh, in the late 1930s and early 1940s. Right. And so just uh, sort of getting a, an overall picture of this period, we're talking about essentially some very big forces that are in play. There's the war against the occupying Japanese state that is running China. Uh, so there's the War of Independence, not, I mean, what's not normally called that, but essentially. It's the, called the War of Resistance Against yeah. Japan. Yes. We in Australia often call it the Second World War. Yes. And of course, what we forget, and what many Chinese people forget about that era in China, is there was actually a Chinese government that sided with Japan. So the nationalists moved to Chongqing uh, when the Japanese invaded after 1937. And the communists were in North China running their guerrilla war. But there was also a government in Nanjing uh, and Wuhan under Wang Jingwei that was uh, siding with Japan. It was one of uh, Japan's colonial governments like they'd had in Manchukuo. But this is not Chiang Kai-shek. No, this is not Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang Kai-shek was in Chongqing. Right. This is another guy altogether. And they were in the uh, central southeastern part of uh, China. A very, a very I mean, controversial figure and remains a very controversial figure and his <laughs> wife too. Uh, uh, I've just been living in, uh, I mean, this is a, a tangent, but I've just been living for the last few years, last decade in Suzhou. And Wang Jingwei's wife lived in Suzhou whilst he was uh, running the government. And they had a residence in, uh, in Suzhou too. Anyhow. Be that as it may. And so the Japanese are eventually expelled. Yes. And then we have the communists moving on the nationalists. We have what is effectively a kind of a civil war. And that's when eventually the nationalists are defeated. Chiang Kai-shek takes uh, the uh, nationalist forces to Taiwan. It's really interesting when you look at sort of a telescoping of these events, the extent to which they frame things that people understand about China now, the tension with Japan, the tension with Taiwan, the premium that is placed by the Chinese Communist Party on the reunification of Greater China, including obviously the um, reabsorption of Taiwan. David? Mark, I would also add that the party's experience in running guerrilla warfare uh, in the late 30s and 19, early 1940s is crucial to understanding its organisational way of doing things after 1949 and right up to the present. Right up to that's all, an interesting observation. Can you expand on that? Yeah, well, all the first of all, all the ideology, all the development of the mass line and how they organise things and how they explain things dates from that period. But on top of that, the administrative, the organizational way of recruiting cadres, of appointing cadres, of looking, of the party looking after government dates from that period. And it's very much based on what was developed in Yan'an and in North China at that time. Also, I think, and Jun will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the intolerance of leaders like Deng Xiaoping for 
democracy which is not generated from the top down, in other words, democracy which comes from the bottom up, is at least to some extent the result of that period. Because here was the party moving into the countryside, mobilizing people who they thought were largely uneducated. And so the benefit of telling them what to do is very obvious. You know, you don't, you don't get many peasants telling you when you say to them in 1939, you shouldn't do that. You don't get peasants saying, no, we won't do that. Uh, indeed, many years later, when I did social science research work in peasant North China, people still said to me things like when I said to them, how was the revolution? They would still say to me, excuse me, what are you talking about? What revolution? You know, this is the way we do things. We obey our landlords. We obey people who own the land. We do what we're told. John, that's a really interesting point, isn't it? This idea that the Chinese Communist Party is coming to power as a as a military force, and the way it has run that revolution is absolutely informs its mentality now, and is translated into you know, much more sophisticated and extraordinary economy than it is now. And yet a lot of that kind of thinking still inculcates uh, the logic of the party knowing best. Oh, yes. It's a matter of a continuity and change, right? The history is continuous, but it also changes. Um, CCP back then was a revolutionary party, but now it has to act as a ruling party. And for that to happen, it has to adapt to different circumstances and changing world power balances as well. And just before um, that, when we're talking about the war of resistance against Japan, um, another interesting thing that I have found uh, is that over the last, say, 20 years or so, um, how the CCP portrays its role and the role of nationalists fighting in the war of resistance against Japan has changed quite significantly, I think partly due to how it perceives Taiwan. Perhaps uh, that's one of the reasons why now it emphasizes more of a role for nationalists, whereas before I remember when I was in China, basically the standard narrative was the CCP was doing all the fighting and nationalists were the ones that uh, did nothing at all. So you can see even in the short period of time how history has really changed. In fact, the reverse was said to be the case, wasn't it? That the uh, the nationalists were, were were very depleted by the war of oh, resistance yes. against the Japanese, and the, the communists had uh, stayed out of a lot of it. Had been cloistered up in the north. Certainly, if you look at casualty numbers, uh, more people have definitely died in the. I mean, it was the regular army. Uh, the nationalists wore the Chinese military. Basically, they were the ruling government. Um, so you would expect that they would do a lot of fighting, of course. Well, if we're talking about who died in the war, <laughs> of course, on both sides, by which I mean the Japanese and the Chinese sides, so nationalists and communists, most of the soldiers who died were not Japanese but were Chinese because most of the Japanese forces in China who were fighting in, the, in that period were actually Chinese mercenaries. Very few, very, very few proportionately Japanese soldiers. And this has nothing to do with Wang Jingwei and the Chinese government. This is, this is the soldiers who just signed up for the Japanese forces. Yeah. If, if, if the communists came into your county and organized against you and you were a landlord, you would switch often, not always, but often to the Japanese side. And your peasants would then join the soldiers who were fighting against the communists. That's what happened. Not everywhere. 
Not everywhere by any stretch of the imagination, but that certainly happened quite a lot. It is also quite localized. Um, which yes, um, militia, which military join often depends on where you happen to be. And uh, so, so my grandfather actually joined the CCP army um, because he was from Shandong and people from that region generally joined the CCP. It has really had nothing to do with ideology. It Well, no, maybe some to do, but more to do with just where you came from. <laughs> so Mao dies in 1976 and uh, we eventually see the rise of Deng Xiaoping, the aforementioned. And there is an adaptation then of Marxist ideology in that period. There is a sense that the uh, the China is going to modernize quite rapidly, and that does occur. But um, there are also uh, some setbacks, and of course, by um, by 1989, we see the Tiananmen Square massacre, and there's a sort of a you know global deflation of hope about the continuous liberalization of China. To start off with, I discount very much the power of Marxist ideology, even under Mao. It had influence, of course, and it led him into some very interesting backwaters, particularly, for example, when he was talking about the bourgeoisie within the party in the late 1950s and early 1960s. But the the crucial thing for me that starts with the foundation of the party is that this is about the nationalist, with a small n, regeneration of China. And Deng Xiaoping was not a minor figure in the party leadership before Mao's death. He was a major figure. And indeed, he was protected by Mao, even during the Cultural Revolution, when Mao attacked him. So, you know, there's lots of paradoxes and ironies here. During the mid-1970s, or in fact, in the beginning in the mid-1950s, there was a debate about how China's socioeconomic development should be managed by the party. And this debate resurrected itself towards the end of the Cultural Revolution, And Deng played a leading role in that. And so when Mao died and the Gang of Four, Mao's widow and her supporters were removed from office in October 1976, it was, there was a kind of inevitability that things would start to change. And Deng, it is sure, led that change. But he didn't lead it so much away from Marxism as towards economic regeneration and integration with the rest of the world. And that's crucial. So I think that side of things is crucial. The other thing where I would take issue with your use of words and what you were saying was the expectation that China was going to liberalize. I'm not sure I understand what that means. If by that you mean China would become a liberal democracy, that was a false expectation even then. If you mean that China might open up, well, to a large domestically, to a large extent it has done, um, despite everything that's happened in the last 10 years, which is There are some ways in which we might see a winding back. Nonetheless, the economy has changed its structure. It has become more open. The the failure, the failure of openness is that the party is still obsessed with control. And that dampens innovation. It creates fear. It reinforces fear as a driver of people's behavior. And that's not good for an open society. I mean, I could say obviously a lot more, but I don't want to hog the conversation. I'm sure <laughs> no, I'm enjoying your thoughts. Forgive me, Mark. Well, I, I, no, no, I absolutely appreciate your, uh, your your thoughts there, and I'm going to get uh, Jun to uh, respond and to say a few things as well. But I'm going to take a quick break first, just because we need to do so, and we'll come back and continue the conversation. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, June, just before the break, uh, David was talking, taking issue to some extent with some of the characterizations that I'd uh, made about expectations of, of liberalization, uh, whether that amounted to it becoming a full liberal democracy or not, it's another matter. I, I don't think I was suggesting that, but some people may have had that hope. Certainly, there was a, a hope that with increasing development, uh, there would be the growth of the middle class, they would demand more freedoms, we would see some institutional norms uh, created around around those freedoms and that this would you know, lead to a more liberal society. Would it be absolutely liberal? I don't think that was uh, necessarily in people's imaginations, but uh, um, for a time it did seem to, to, to be moving in some of those directions. And uh, we see things like by 2001 the uh, – membership of the World Trade Organization, for example, as China is coming into the world agreeing to, uh, you know, play by those rules. So, you know, there's there's some continuity here in, in some of these things uh, that, that were fueling these hopes. Yes, there's certain continuity and there certainly has been hopes throughout uh, early CCP history for liberalization as well. Uh, I think even during Yan'an times, there was a lot of debate uh, about, you know, can we allow artists and literatis more freedom? Um, unfortunately, that was struck down and many literary people who uh, argued for more uh, liberalizing influences was uh, basically, uh, some of them were actually tortured. Um, and then after that, there was a little hundred flowers bloom campaign, but then that then turns into enticing the snakes out of their holes. And then they were again struck down. So throughout uh, early uh, CCP history, there has been successive rounds, almost endless rounds of purges, after purges where people first had hope and then they got crushed. And um, when we look at Deng Xiaoping, he's actually a survivor. He is a survivor of so many purges. It's a miracle when you think about it, how someone can really, after so many purges, get struck down and then get elevated again and get struck down again to really somehow still achieve, in the end, I guess, great leadership, being a leader of the CCP. And that that is quite... Uh, uh, quite amazing. Although now I think there is also a debate about his actual influence. Um, there's also people saying that Hua Guofeng, uh, who 
succeeded Mao was had a more of a role to play in opening up the country than what Deng Xiaoping did. But of course, Deng Xiaoping being becoming a paramount leader means his role was elevated. But interestingly, now that she has come into power, under she we are seeing that. Deng's role is again being de-emphasized, whereas Mao's role in the CCP has again been emphasized. And we should really think about why um, she would want to do that. Uh, perhaps it is, uh, one explanation is that she w- wants to be more like Mao, being more centralizing power, more of a force for centralization and less force for liberalization as uh, the common uh, narrative holds for Deng Xiaoping. That's a really interesting point. What, what's your response to that, David? Is, is it possible that this is driven a lot by ego? I mean, uh, the great figure of the Chinese revolution is Mao Zedong. Why wouldn't Xi Jinping want to be essentially, you know, put him and Mao in, on the same pedestal and, and, and leave all the rest of them out of it? Is it as simple as that or is there some deeper ideological or control logic to this? It's something that's concerned me for the last decade, really. I thought at the beginning when Xi Jinping seemed to be developing what other people might describe as a personality cult, I I thought this was because he needed to remove strong contenders to his position in the leadership of the party. But he is still continuing to do that. And it's really for me, it's really interesting that he hasn't moved against not the people who are in the party leadership, but the families who control the wealth of China. There would be a reason for wanting to have all that concentrated personal power if you were going to do something with it other than... More of the same. More of the same, yeah. And there are two key goals, it seems to me, for the leader, the leader of the CCP at the moment. One is to maintain the rule of the Communist Party, and the other is to keep the economy growing. Because if you don't do those two things, you're finished. I don't understand why the extent of his personality cult, where it comes into this. Because the one thing we know from history, you'll forgive me for using this, given mm-hmm. that I criticized history before, but the one <laughs> thing we know from the past is that if you have a um, somebody who is personalist and stays around for a long time, the successor problem becomes enormous. Who is going to succeed Xi Jinping? It will become a tremendous problem. There is, you know, the lack of procedures for that now compared to 10 years ago uh, are really quite considerable. So I think, it, you know, you're in danger. You're not going to jeopardize the whole project. But if you continue going down this path and there's a financial crisis or an economic crisis in China, you've got a real problem. So I would, I, I don't understand it at all. Maybe Jun, though. Um, you know anybody who knows <laughs> Xi Jinping? I don't know anybody who knows Xi Jinping. No, unfortunately, I don't have a high enough contacts. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, you were talking. I mean, I would like to come back to this issue of um, what people say and what they do. Yes, because I think I think for me, the, there's a really important point in this that. You know, we were talking about the Communist Party's Marxism. We were talking about their attitude to democracy and so on. I want to quote you something from 1941. And tell me if you know who said this, Jun. It's this. We, this is 1941. This is a major Communist Party leader. 
We communists always oppose a one-party dictatorship. The Communist Party of China certainly doesn't have a program to monopolize government because one party can only rule in its own interests and won't act according to the will of the people. Moreover, it goes, it goes against democratic politics. Who do you think said that? Mao Zedong? No, Deng Xiaoping. Now, why do you know? You've got to you've got to unpack it and understand where it comes from. This is when they were trying to form uh, uh, local governments of resistance to the Japanese in in the War of Resistance, Uh, and they were actually setting up government systems. And so they were saying, "Yes, we are in favour of these things." Why don't they do that after forty nine? Because they the 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 rule is the party is looking to maintain its position. It's not there for liberal democratic purposes. It could, if it wanted to, have more openness under um, the mass line, under the notion of democratic centralism, but it chooses not to. That's, that's my simple point. The party actually talks a lot about democracy throughout its history. It does and it indeed. Actually- Talks. I mean, more recently, you know, democracy means democracy under the CCP. But during early party times, um, it yeah, it was. It talked a lot about yeah. multi-party. But you know, when you become the ruling party, then you yeah, want to hold on to rule. It's a tactic. That's because <laughs> it's a tactic. And we shouldn't forget where the ideas of contemporary ideas of democracy come from. They don't come from ancient Greece. They come from the French Revolution. And in the French mm-hmm. Revolution, there were two very different views of democracy. One was what we now call liberal democracy, and the other is what we might, if we chose to, call totalitarian democracy, but what is which is well represented as uh, democratic centralism. It's where the party knows what's in the interests of the people. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's not a manifest notion of democracy in the people themselves, but the party interpreting the interests of the people for the people. And that's democratic centralism. Yes, right. Well, I'm glad we don't quite have that in this country at this stage. But we do not have yet. it on this podcast. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> wait, wait for it. To, to June's point about uh, the party talking a lot about democracy, though, I'm reminded of the uh, there was an episode of Yes Minister where it's explained to young Bernard at one point that the less you intend to do about something, the more you need to talk about it. And and another law was always deal with the difficult part in the title. So whenever you're making a report, uh, you you know you can put it in the title, and then you don't have to refer to it again. And of course, there have been plenty of countries around the world that have called themselves the Democratic Republic of this or that. Um, well, there's the DPRK, for example. Well, uh, you know, if you don't mind me saying so, we have a Conservative Party that calls itself a Liberal Party. That's <laughs> yes. not that hang up on words. Yes, no, that's, that's very <laughs> true. That's very true. Let's talk about Xi Jinping, though, because um, you know he comes to power. He becomes leader for life in 2018. Before that, he's begun the process of... Um, uh, of uh, building these islands in the South China Sea, much to the chagrin of uh, the international community, particularly Australia, but uh, but the West generally, is he a different leader from not just what we thought when he arrived, but has he in fact changed since the time that he arrived as the leader of China to what he is now? Have we seen a a change in Xi Jinping over that time? He's become more autocratic, uh, taken more control, brooked fewer other voices or possibilities or rivals for leadership, as you were touching on, David. 
Do you think he's changed? Shall I let you do an answer first? If we're only looking at after he took power, I don't think he has changed because even during his early times under his uh, Xi's rule, he was quite authoritarian already. We can see he has authoritarian tendencies through his anti-corruption drives, his ways to ensure loyalty to him mm-hmm. and also get rid of rivals, right? Um, now, that's pretty common for a new leader. From then, our expectations of him hasn't really changed. What has changed is before he took power, people thought that he would go uh, continue the lines of economic reform, continue the line of perhaps a little bit more freedom for people to dissent. And since he has come into power, that kind of expectation has been shattered. Uh, We are seeing there's definitely a lot more control. There's a lot of more crushing of dissent. People have been getting, got into trouble, have been jailed for what they say, more so than under previous rulers, perhaps. In that sense, he, he hasn't really changed after he took power, but he has revealed himself more to be a more of an authoritarian ruler. And the one thing that has perhaps surprised a lot of people is a change of constitution. The term limit was imposed for a reason because the CCP realized there is danger in a cult of personality. There is a danger in having someone ruling for so long as Mao has done. So it has been a surprise to a lot of people that the such term limits were removed. David? I think it would be dangerous to equate Xi Jinping's one-person rule with Mao's one-person rule for the following reasons. Mao was uh, somebody who came up through the ranks and was proved to be right in the strategy and tactics of the revolution when those around him were proved wrong. And he developed a group of people who worked with him and who, as the years went on, strove to do what he wanted even when it wasn't easy to understand it. You only have to look at the history of the fifties uh, and early sixties to see that even even in the birth of the Cultural Revolution, when Mao turned on the party, there were people like Liu Xiaoqi and Deng Xiaoping who were the major opponents, you know, presented as the major resistance to the Cultural Revolution, who actually were trying to do what he wanted. So that was the situation. Mao's authority was based on charisma. That's the source of his legitimacy for having done the right thing for so long and people wanting to revolve around him. Xi Jinping isn't like that. Xi Jinping uh, came up again through the ranks, but he came up through the ranks of an established party state. You know, he, he ran for office, as it were, on merit, on doing what he did. Did he have a group of people around him? Well, he clearly did. And that's my point. He is the figurehead, but he isn't at absolute in his power the way that Mao was. If he really annoyed the people who support him in the leadership, he could conceivably be removed. How do we see Xi Jinping controlling the levers of state, of security, of intelligence, of domestic intelligence in quite the way that Mao did? I don't. I think there are other people who are involved there and they have interests, including, as I alluded to before, the very important economic interests. People don't have to be independent capitalists to have economic interests in the party state. You asked a question before about the middle class. Yep. 
don't forget that the middle class in China is not independent of the party state. It is mm-hmm. an essential. There is a growing and small professional middle class who might be seen to be independent of the party state, but most of the middle class are an inherent part of the party state. It's a big difference to a liberal democracy. And certainly,、uh, most people join the CCP for career advancement and not because of ideology. And so you do, especially since I think was John's times, you do see a lot of people that is in the middle class as a managerial level or professional. Level that's in the CCP. John is absolutely right. I had colleagues in Suzhou who were very disappointing in the way the Communist Party had jo- had gone because they were members and they wanted more Marxism, not less. Yeah. <laughs> well, while we're on the subject of Marxism and class, I mean, Marxism is based around class and the idea of、uh, the, the, the proletariat's responsibility to to, to rise up to uh, seize uh, seize control from their oppressors and、uh, from from the capitalist class. Tell me how how does the modern Chinese Communist Party reconcile this question of class against the vast wealth of、uh, some individuals? There are now more billionaires in Beijing than there are in New York, fractionally.、Uh, the economy is obviously going gangbusters, but the disparity between the richest and the poorest in China is is, is absolutely huge, of course. How does the Chinese Communist Party explain this to its own people? Well, the first thing is, you know, Dan said,、uh, let some people get rich first, and other people will follow.、Um, unfortunately,、up. that has does not seem to have happened. So, <laughs> what the CCP has done is that it, it does co-opt the labor unions, for example. So, all the unions in China is part of the CCP. There is no independent union that you can find. And if you were a, an organizer, an independent organizer of labor, a labor organizer. You will get harassed by the CCP and sometimes put in jail. And quite interestingly, one of the biggest critic of the Chinese Communist Party and one of its biggest source of threat is actually from Marxists.、Um, there's a Marxist on campus that's quite agitating for labor rights, and they are seen as more of a threat to the Chinese Communist Party than really a, a, an ally. <laughs> So how does Chinese Communist Party then square with that? I guess one thing that it has done recently is its anti its anti poverty campaigns. So the party came to power on the basis of rural peasants supporting and、uh, supporting the party and the workers supporting the party, and has always promised these、uh, sections of the country. Uh, benefits, but、uh, what we've seen throughout history is that it's always the peasants that suffer the most.、Uh, it suffers through the Great Leap Forward and the famine and the Cultural Revolution. Peasants are the ones that are always suffering. But now, under Xi Jinping, it has promised that it has eliminated poverty.、Uh, that finally, it has fulfilled the promise of what it has.、Uh, Came to do、uh, has eliminate poverty, and now it has turned its attention to getting more benefits for people that live in rural areas. I guess that's just a way for them to always sell hope. You you want people to have hope. Unfortunately, hope is getting it, hope amongst people in China are declining. But the Chinese Communist Party is trying to get people to become more hopeful for the future. David, your thoughts on on that question of how the party reconciles this argument? I don't. Agree about lack of hope in China. I mean, I, my experience living in China in the last decade has been that people are very、uh, positive about the regime. I'm equally as pessimistic 
as uh, Jun and you about equality. I mean, I, I, I think equality is, is an appalling problem. Inequality is mm. an appalling problem in China. And um, were the party to be serious about decreasing inequality, it would, inc- it would introduce a, a redistributive tax system and probably abolish who, uh, household registration between rural and urban as well. Now, it's not done that, and it's not planning to do that. It's planning to fund government spending, not through taxation, but through the profits of enterprises. That seems to me entirely the wrong way to go about creating a sustainable economic growth, but that's a different matter. Now, how does the party justify uh, the role of the proletariat in its, its vision? Well, of course, it's always had that problem, because uh, that particular ideology came out of Europe at the end of the 19th century and was all about capitalism, about capitalists versus workers in an industrial situation. And most, much of China has never been, had that kind of economic geography. So from the beginning, it was always going to be hard to have that kind of revolution and that kind of political movement, which is why, of course, 1927 was uh, and the attempted revolution in the in the towns by the party was such a failure after that the party reinterpreted the role of the proletariat as the role of the workers and peasants and it's done that consistently ever since and it still does that and it says you know it's a proletarian revolution because we stand for the peasants and workers and the people of china and that's how it presents itself it's not true of course that whilst the rich have got richer, the poor have got poorer. They haven't. On the whole, the poor have also got wealthier. It's just the rich have got stinking rich. And the wealth of the country is not equally shared. And so the exploitation of peasants and workers is quite horrific. At the end of the 1990s, when the state decided to move away from a large degree of state-owned enterprise management, it laid off about 60 million urban workers, a huge proportion of the urban workforce. And many of those people and their families still have poverty-like situations. They've been unable to find Mm. work. Uh, It's replaced the proletariat, the urban proletariat, with a category, a new category of the working class, uh, the migrant workers who come in from the countryside, who do not have welfare benefits uh, in urban uh, areas, who sometimes don't have the right to live, and who suffer in consequence. So the working class is really, the new working class, the new migrant working class is really a precariat, mm. yeah. which is quite a staggering phenomena in a communist party state. Yes, precisely. You would have thought it's one of the reasons for being. Well, it's not true. It, of course, I would be unfair if I said that the party state wasn't trying to introduce policies uh, to ameliorate the situation of those social categories. But it's a very slow process and it isn't putting as much resources into it as it's putting into some other things. Much slower than that uh, wealth accumulation. I just want to finish on on a question to you both, uh, noting that Stephen Fitzgerald, who had accompanied uh, Whitlam to Peking back in 1971 in that uh, famous visit and then was named as Australia's first ambassador there, He's joined the chorus of criticism, I suppose, about Australia's approach to uh, to China now, diplomatically speaking. He cites countries like Japan, Vietnam, South Korea and Singapore who have historical grievances with China but who have maintained some level of back-channel uh, dialogue. They've, they've got sort of multi-level 
uh, communication going on. I, I just wonder whether you could both speak to that, whether we have done too much publicly and not enough privately and left ourselves exposed here. Well, I definitely think that. I retired last March, this March, just gone, came back to Sydney, came back to a world I didn't recognise of conflict between China and Australia, uh, open conflict. And I've been trying to understand what's going on when ministers get up in public and say, well, our calls to our counterparts in Beijing are not being answered. Well, of course they're not. Um, If you go in for megaphone diplomacy, they're not going to be answered. What you need to do is have, as Stephen says, the back talk. You need to have your people talk to their people, and it's not impossible. Other countries do it. We certainly should be doing it. The reason we're not doing it is because we're being a kind of sheriff to the United States in the region, and I don't understand it. What do we have to gain from alienating China? What do we have to gain? I mean, there are things we should be standing up for in criticizing China. I'm not arguing about that. But at the same time, we have a lot to gain from interaction with China. And the sen- in my view, the sensible way to do it would be to make your criticisms known to China at the same time as you engage with China. But standing up with a megaphone and going out on a lead to criticize China for actually some things they may not even be responsible for, like uh, COVID-19, this doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, they may be responsible for it. Please don't <laughs> misunderstand me, but they may not be. And if you don't know, don't shout it in public. Interesting point. Jun? Well, Australia is a middle power, but I think the problem is a government tends to forget that and we like to act as if we are a great power. We like to think, say things like, oh, you know, we should do whatever we want without suffering any consequences, basically. But Australia is a middle power, what we should be doing is to really bend together with other middle powers and not really stick our heads out unnecessarily. Because that's actually, you know, this is what great power does. The United States can go and confront China. That's fine. They're both great powers, but Australia is not. So we should really work with our allies partners, you know, like-minded countries, as they say in diplomacy, and to ensure, to be clear what our interests are and to really pursue our interests through working with in multilateral organizations, international forums, other countries to pursue our national interest. There are so many ways in which we could take this discussion further, and I've really thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope uh, our listeners have enjoyed it too. Jun Jung and David Goodman, thanks for being with us on this Democracy Sausage, marking both the 100th anniversary of the CCP and the 50th anniversary of that famous visit by Gough Whitlam back in 1971. So thanks again to both of you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. I'm Mark Kenny. Let's talk again next week. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.